0: Hello, my name is David Freestone. I'm a former Deputy General Counsel at the World Bank and uh, previously Professor of International Law at the University of Hull in England. And I'm going to talk about the, the Law of the Sea Convention. The title of my lecture is 25 years of the Law of the Sea Convention. Is it a success? Basically I'll follow a, uh, uh, the following kind of layout. I'll do a brief review of the Convention. Uh, with particular emphasis on natural resources and environmental issues. I'll look at the two implementing agreements of 94 and 95. I'll look at the significance of the 1992 UN conference on environment and development. I'll look at a few other developments and then move towards an assessment. What issues have been successful and where perhaps did the drafters miss issues and uh, then come to some conclusions. Well. Twenty-five years ago, in December of uh, 1982, in Montego Bay, Jamaica, uh, the countries taking part in the third United Nations Conference on the Law of the Sea concluded the text of the Convention. It was UNCLOS III. It was their third attempt. In 1958, they had concluded four four Conventions and a Protocol on Dispute Settlement. In 1960, UNCLOS II Uh, ended without really any practical result and this conference, this third UN conference, was a massive effort. Nine years of negotiations between 1973 and 1982, 320 articles, 19 annexes of some considerable complexity and a number of important innovative legal concepts. Uh, Primarily there would be issues from our perspective of the issues that I'm going to talk about uh, the development of the exclusive economic zone, the zone of two hundred miles in which states can claim exclusive rights to exploitation of resources. Uh, uh, towards the edge of the uh, ex- of the exclusive economic zone, we move into the continental shelf, and the continental shelf, the margin of the continental shelf, had never been defined by customary international law. In a very very complex provision of Article seventy six of the Convention. Uh, the the parameters for for determining the edge of the continental margin were were laid down. Why was this important? Because the areas beyond the continental margin, beyond the edge of the delineation of this margin was the deep sea bed. Again a new concept called the area by the convention uh, was subject to uh, international jurisdiction by a new institution which I'll talk about in a minute. Other new concepts archipelagic status. Island states were able to claim a particular status Uh, which gave, singled them out as archipelagos. They could link the uh, coastal areas, the outermost points of the outermost islands together, and within that regime they, they had a particular, a new status which was recognized by the convention. They also gave new roles to existing institutions like the Food and Agriculture Organization and the International Maritime Organization, which they termed competent or and appropriate international organizations. So new institutions as well, I mentioned the seabed, well it set, set up the International Seabed Authority, the ISA, which is based now in Kingston, Jamaica. It also established the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf, which was set up to provide scientific advice and, uh, and uh, judgment of the way in which countries limited their continental margins. And then perhaps most important, the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea, ITLOS, now based in Hamburg. Uh, which has jurisdiction for the settlement of disputes arising under the Law of the Sea Convention. Well, despite this mass- massive effort, it was not until 1994 that the, that the convention came into force. And that was only after uh, an important and innovative uh, supplementary arrangement called an implementing agreement, uh, which was designed to, which basically redesigned the seabed regime. And this was the first of what could be seen as three uh, major um, loosely changes to the Law of the Sea Convention. In 1993 the FAO had concluded a compliance agreement. We have this 1994 agreement which I'll talk about in some detail in a minute. And then in 1995 the second implementation agreement relating to highly migratory fish stocks and straddling fish stocks. Well the Convention now has more than 150 parties Uh, which is as close to universality as it would be possible to get probably with a Convention of this kind. Uh, And let me talk a little bit about these these implementing agreements. The first one, the 94 Agreement, which relates to the implementation of Part 11 of the Convention, uh, and which was really able to bring the bottleneck which had occurred in the ratification of the Convention to a close and bring the Convention into force. It severely re-engineered, I think would be perhaps a a term, not a legal term, but a a, a term which uh, describes what happened with the the Convention in relation to to Part 11. Nine major modifications were made to that seabed regime. It changed uh, a number of the operating principles, either explicitly by saying that they won't apply, that certain provisions shall not apply, or also as principles of interpretation, the way that they should be interpreted it set aside certain controversial provisions um, it shelled for example the, uh, the 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 so-called enterprise which was to be the business uh, uh, corporation of the of the deep sea uh, of the international seabed authority and it removed a, a number of the funding obligations of investors it created a number of new organs of which primarily there was a new finance committee so this was a this was a, a, a substantial uh, re-engineering of the, of the regime of Part 11. It resulted in entry into force of the Convention and th- it also avoided what was an important risk that without the Convention coming to force, it had already been in existence for 14 years without coming into force, there was a risk that customary international law began to roll back some of the basic principles which had been accepted in the 82 Convention. Um, International lawyers have commented on this. Uh, Judge Nelson from the International Tribunal has talked of this agreement as a a protocol of amendment. Um, Judge Anderson, who was actually one of the important, that was instrumental in actually negotiating this this, uh, implementing agreement, takes the view that the word amend is best avoided, and you'll notice that I haven't used that word. Uh, The late Louis Soane, who uh, uh, had played a, a remarkable role in the development of the Dispute Settlement uh, part of the, of the Convention said that the Convention itself is an ex- excellent example of adapting international law to new circumstances and the 1994 agreement, he thought, has carried this process further and has adapted Part eleven to the changed circumstances of the 1990s. And certainly without that, that agreement uh, the Convention probably would not have entered into force for another, another few years now the second implementation agreement dates from 1995 and this was designed really to address what was part of the what has been called the unfinished agenda of uh, the regime relating to straddling fish stocks and highly migratory fish stocks stocks that move beyond national jurisdiction or which which spend most of their life spans within uh, outside areas of national jurisdiction um, and in in this convention we see in this implementing agreement we see for the first time in what is effectively a global fisheries agreement the need to protect the marine environment and it does this through provisions which uh, emphasise the importance of the protection of biological diversity, biodiversity as it's called, the maintenance of the integrity of marine ecosystems and the minimization of risks of long-term or irreversible effects particularly of fishing operations. It is an implementing agreement. It develops the regime of the 1982 regime. It takes it further uh, and it introduces new concepts. It endorses, for example, uh, concepts which had, and I'll say a little bit in in a minute, about the the Rio meeting, the Conference on Environment and Development, but incorporates concepts that had been uh, endorsed by states at that that 1992 meeting, particularly the ecosystem approach. It endorses the precautionary approach, indeed it mandates the precautionary approach in certain circumstances in Article 6, and it also sets out in its Annex 2 uh, and it, the first methodology for actually using a precautionary approach in capture fisheries. Uh, and it also requires compatibility for the management regimes of exclusive e- economic zones and their adjacent high seas in its Article 9, and it sets further New mechanisms for international cooperation. Article 17 addresses what's been called the free rider issue the position of, of states which are not parties to regional fisheries management organizations but fish within the area, despite, if you like, taking advantage of the, of the constraint and the management regime which has been set up by others. And it, for the first time, restricts the right of non members of RFMOs actually for fish in those areas for straddling and highly migratory fish stocks. It also extends rights of enforcement. It allows, in circumstances, boarding by third states of, of, of countries with, of the vessels of countries which are not uh, complying with these, uh, with these conservation and management measures. And it gives powers under Article 32 to port states to, uh, to, to enforce these provisions as well. So it was a, a pretty radical and, and uh, important move forward in, in the fisheries regime for areas beyond national jurisdiction for straddling stocks. So International lawyers then ask, does it actually change the convention? Does it modify the convention? Um, it's important to remember that the convention is only binding on the parties. There are now more than 60 parties, which interestingly enough is not enough to actually make a fun- to, to amend formally the, the text of the convention. So it's only binding between the parties into say. Uh, it provides uh, a number of provisions which substantially develop the regime. Uh, other provisions have been argued to undermine some of its basic principles such as freedom of fishing on the high seas because it allows it to be restricted. Um, so it's difficult to see this really as a simple interpretation uh, agreement and it should be viewed I think possibly as what Professor Ian Brownlee has called in his treatise on, uh, on uh, public international law as modification. And over time uh, these changes, these new provisions, may well actually be seen part, to become part of the law of the sea regime itself, which are de facto amendments. So let me say a little bit now about the impact of the 1992 Rio Earth Summit, the Conference on Environment and Development. Uh, the outcomes for that are, are fairly well known, two major conventions, one on climate change and one on marine, uh, one on biological diversity. Uh, a massive agenda for 21, the Agenda 21 which sets out a, uh, a work program which will take us through for a, a few more years still together with a statement of principles. But I think for our purposes in looking at the, the way that it impacts on the Convention and on the on the implementing agreement, it introduces the importance of protection of marine biodiversity and ecosystems into this regime. It provides for important moves forward in the way that straddling and highly migratory fish stocks which had not really been adverted to in the 1982 regime uh, should be dealt with and it deals also with land based sources of pollution something which had not perhaps been picked up as being so significant by the by the drafters of the of the 82 uh, regime what it also did which was pretty important i think in as we move forward into a regime of of uh, global cooperation in looking particularly at environmental issues is that it established financial mechanisms for the implementation of these conventions, these RIO conventions. Um, and the, the primary one for this, which, was, is, which is actually mentioned as, um, on an interim basis in both those conventions, is the global environment facility uh, for which the World Bank acts as trustee. Uh, and on the basis of the principle of common but differentiated responsibility, uh, the developed countries agree to contribute to the environmental to the uh, global environment facility in order to finance activities of developed com- developing countries um, now we don 't have a similar mechanism for the law of the sea convention in that sense the law of the sea convention was was ten years too early. There are certain aspects of what of conservation of biological diversity which could be funded by the con- convention but that 's perhaps something which which the uh, we could see as a, as a defect in the uh, subsequently in the instrumentalities for implementing the convention. There have also been a number of uh, wider scientific discoveries and developments which, which uh, the drafters of the convention really could n- not have known would happen. Much excitement uh, in the 70s and 80s was, 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 it was ventilated in relation to um, the so-called manganese nodules. These are uh, metallic uh, uh, metallic substances found in deep, very deep ocean areas which offered opportunities for exploitation. Uh, 25 years on these really haven't become uh, financially viable as yet. May still, but not yet. But in the meantime we've discovered a lot of other resources. Oceanic vents in deep ocean areas with new life forms so-called extremophiles which could live at 300 degrees uh, centigrade, some of them non-carbon based. Uh, which offer great potential for pharmaceutical and for for chemical industries and for new developments. Uh, We also understand the impact of of fishing on on marine marine biodiversity. I think we've underestimated for many years the impact of of overfishing on the functioning of the oceans. The FAO, uh, the Food and Agricultural Organization, thinks that more than 76% of fish stocks are either uh, fully exploited or overexploited, and that's had an impact on the food chains and on on biodiversity generally, which current scientific thinking uh, is suggesting would have some impact on its ability to to absorb carbon and therefore have an impact on climate change. New deep ocean species which are highly vulnerable to overexploitation, orange roughy, Patagonian toothfish, uh, these are fish which live for over a hundred years, they don't reach sexual maturity until 15, 18 years old. They don't breed every year. Uh, they're highly vulnerable to, to over-exploitation because they they take such a long time to, to reach maturity. Um, and these have been very highly exploited so that almost some of them are becoming threatened before we even really know that scientists are really aware of, of, the, of all their, their special characteristics. And there are other deep ocean species as well some of which could have quite a lot of importance for us for, for scientific research. Uh, we're also uh, aware now of the impact of exotic species on the marine ecosystems. As vessels move through the oceans, they take in ballast water in one ocean, uh, they discharge it in another ocean, and with it they discharge microorganisms which can have highly deleterious impacts on uh, on the uh, environment into which they're discharged. Uh, one particularly uh, noxious jellyfish discharged into the Black Sea was, about ten years ago, calculated to have a biomass greater than the fish catch, of the annual global fish catch, and this is a resource which is, this is a, a species which is just using resources, it's not contributing anything to the environment, there's no natural predators. Other developments would perhaps be at a slightly different level in relation to, say, underwater cultural heritage. Um, most of the uh, contemporary commentators regard the provisions of Article 303 of the Convention which deals with this issue as being overtaken by events, that that conservation requires not exploitation of these resources but their conservation in situ. So uh, uh, at a different level there's also been some concern expressed about the provisions of Article 303 relating to the conservation of underwater cultural heritage and UNESCO has produced a Convention which uh, sets different standards for, for, for the way in which we should approach the conservation of underwater heritage, which some have regarded as being contrary to the principles of Article 303. Okay, so let's start to move towards some conclusions. What what, what did the negotiators get right? And remember we're talking about 320 articles and nine appendixes. A great deal. The basic structure of maritime regimes which it uh, which it established uh, is of great value to us. The, Territorial sea, the contiguous zone, the exclusive economic zone, the continental shelf, the areas re- relating to uh, the seabed, and then, and then of course concepts like uh, archipelagic status. So that basic structure is, has 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 uh, has served us well. It provides an excellent framework also for future developments. Uh, the provisions relating to national fisheries jurisdiction within those zones also set up a robust regime, which I think has proved to be in effect much more effective. Uh, way of protecting marine resources than the previous high seas regime. The basic unequivocal principle of Article 192, that states have the obligation to protect and preserve the marine environment, was a, was very far-sighted and now it must have passed into customary international law. So that was a major innovation by the Convention. And it also codified principles for marine pollution control, even if it didn't perhaps pay as much attention to uh, to uh, land-based sources, it perhaps could. It also introduced important integration techniques into uh, to allow the uh, the text of the convention to respond to new developments. For example, international institutions are entrusted with specific tasks in respect to the convention. I re- already mentioned FAO and IMO, and states are required to cooperate through international institutions. They're required to establish more detailed rules and regulations through competent international organizations to respond uh, to new challenges. And they're required to take into account and act upon the recommendations of organizations. And the measures that they adopt have to meet generally accepted rules and standards. What did they miss? Were really the things that they couldn't have been expected to have foreseen the scientific scientific developments that I talked about, the deep ocean vents, the deep sea species, the significance of deep ocean and, uh, and, and high seas areas for global uh, planetary uh, climate uh, functions, these sorts of things they, they really couldn't have foreseen. Uh, they probably gave, this is my own view of course, undue importance to a number of things. The regime for manganese nodule mining, took a lot of time it was a highly sophisticated regime it was of course the regime which was changed by the implementation agreement of 94 um, still yet to produce the financial results which were expected of it 30 years ago they also spent a lot of time on the amendment procedures um, and as we've seen de facto changes have actually been introduced into by into the convention by the implementation agreements without the use of the implement of the amendment procedures in fact they are so complex, you know, one would wonder whether they'd ever be used. I also said they codified the practice of oil on oil pollution and ocean dumping, but they did under, uh, underrate the significance of land-based sources. This poses a particular problem for an international regime because this does arise in areas of national jurisdiction, but it is, it is more than 60-70% of, p- of marine pollution actually comes from land-based sources. Nor did they know that 10 years later in in Rio that states would be developing new mechanisms of financial assistance to assist developing countries to take advantage of the new opportunities which the uh, Law of the Sea Convention offered. So, was it a success? Has it been a success? uh, Judge Anderson, in a recent uh, essay, reminded us that uh, Professor Verzile, who was the legal advisor to the Dutch delegation to to UNCLOS One, although, of course, in 1958 they didn't realize it was only the first one, uh, says in his massive history of international law, uh, he reports that as he was driving in in a taxi back to his hotel after the end of the convention, he reflected on this question. Was it a success? And he decided, as a whole, it was a success. Well, let's apply the same criteria to the Law of the Sea Convention. It has near universal participation. It has a robust and viable regime. It's introduced important new concepts. There have been new things that have happened, uh, which international institutions have been able to respond to by innovative uh, concepts such as the implementing agreements and by other conventions. Uh, So it has been able to accommodate major shifts of emphasis. So I think that Looking back over the last 25 years, we can join Professor Vazaal in saying of UNCLOS III and of the 1982 convention that, as a whole, it was a success.